Good morning, North Shore. Oh, you can hear me. <laughs> That's great. Hey, it's great to see you guys. It's, uh, I'll admit to you, this is the first time I've been back since this whole COVID thing. And I have to tell you, it is, wow, it's incredible seeing your faces as I remember them, at least half of them. From here up, I remember, right? It's great to be with you guys. And my hope and prayer, and maybe it's for all of us, is that, you know, as the weeks and months go by, this room would continue to fill, that this whole pandemic, uh, God, God would uh, remove from our world, and that we would go back to some sense of normalcy. Amen? That's all of our prayers, I know. Well, you guys, as we know, we are... We are in a series, and this is the second part. Scott shared the first part last week on radically loving one another. And as you know, he talked about radically loving each other, the church, last week. And I'm going to focus more on our neighbor and our enemy. <clears throat> I got the short end of the stick, obviously, or the straw. But no, it's, it's going to be great, you guys, and I'm excited in this message, if it challenges you, just know it's been challenging me for weeks, and God's been really wrestling um, with me on, on a lot of this. So um, I'm excited, though, you guys. God, God is uh, doing some phenomenal things in, in all of this. I want to start out by sharing a story. I went um, hunting last weekend, elk hunting up in the mountains, and sorry, my mask is doing some funny things. I uh, went up elk hunting in the mountains, and... For me, elk hunting, it's just about taking a long walk in the woods with a gun. That's it. Okay, no elk were harmed at all in this process. I just want you to know that. But I did make some friends, kind of. I was sitting on a log, and these birds just came out of nowhere, and they started to fly around me, and then they were landing on the, the trees, and then they came in closer, and they were hopping around my feet. And I was just eating a, a peanut butter cookie, right, minding my own business. And all of a sudden, one of these birds came and just grabbed part of the cookie and tore it off and flew out and just sat in a tree and ate it. And I'm like, what in the world, right? I've never had a, I don't know about you guys, but a bird be so aggressive, right, in a, in a sense. And, and as I was sitting there, they were just coming more and more. And one landed on my cell phone when I was looking at it. I'm like, oh, my gosh. And then finally, that cookie, I took the crumbs and I put it in my hand. And you can see right here, I, I took a video of it, actually eating out of my hand the peanut butter crumbs, right? These are gray jays. They live east of the mountains. They live all over the Rockies and in Canada. They're also called camp robbers <laughs> for obvious reasons, right? And as soon as they were done taking what they wanted from me, they left. They just disappeared. I was out of cookies, right? My friends, have you ever known anyone who takes advantage of you, who robbed you maybe of your resources or your time or your patience, your emotional energy, and after they took that from you, they were gone, right? Believe it or not, those most difficult people in our lives, Jesus calls us to radically love, to love 
to do good to, to bless, and to give sacrificially without expectations. Get more into that in a little bit. But first, let's pray. Jesus, we recognize that this teaching is so difficult. And, and shall I say impossible, apart from your Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, we need your help today. We need you to help us, Lord, love others as you love them. To see others as you see them. Our neighbor, and yes, as crazy as it sounds, even our enemies. And Lord, we know we need your Holy Spirit to show up. We need, no, we need your Holy Spirit to intervene on our behalf in order to do that, especially in the season that we're in right now. So Jesus, we desperately need your help. And we ask for that today. Pray this in your son's name. Amen. My friends, we're called to radically love one another. As Pastor Scott talked about last week, Matthew 22, a whole passage, uh, 37 through 40. Jesus' greatest commandment, right? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the second greatest commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. It's a piece of cake, right? I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think Jesus wouldn't have made such a huge emphasis on this. The second greatest commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. It must have been really important to him. So who's our neighbor? I mean, did he mean our really obnoxious neighbor? Couldn't have meant that person, right? Or our loud music neighbor? Or our why can't they put their dang dog in the house so it doesn't bark all night neighbor? Did he mean our immigrant neighbor? Our black neighbor? Our white neighbor? Our atheist neighbor, our Muslim neighbor, our conservative neighbor, our liberal neighbor, our LGBTQIA neighbor, our indigenous neighbor, our Jewish neighbor, our progressive neighbor, our incarcerated neighbor, our homeless neighbor, our addicted neighbor. Did you really mean those people? Yeah, I think he did. I believe Jesus recognized that our neighbor wasn't just the person even next door. It was... It included so many of the people that you and I might interact with throughout our life. Even those on the other side of the political fence from where we are. Even those outside of our borders. Those people who don't necessarily look like us, act like us, believe like us, think like us. Right? He knew loving our neighbors was going to be difficult. And if that isn't enough, he preaches a sermon in Matthew 5, 43. And he says this. It's on the Sermon of the Mount. And he talks about so many things. Anger and lust and divorce and oaths and retaliation. And he takes it to the nth degree. He's saying, you have heard this, but I say. And it's like light years ahead of that. It's like there's absolutely no way, but this is what Jesus is calling us to. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor 
and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. My friends, that seems impossible. But that is what Christ is calling us to do. To love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. And Jesus never did or said anything that he wasn't willing to live out and to model, right? So we see so clearly on the cross as he's dying, as he's been mocked and spit on, as he's been ridiculed, as they've beaten him, he's dying on the cross and he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. These very people who are hurling these insults and mocking him, he's now forgiving and he's interceding for them. And he even offers salvation to one of the thieves, one of the robbers, one of the criminals that's hanging right next to him. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. This is our Savior as he's suffering. He's loving his enemies. So who's our enemy? Our enemy is probably not some nebulous, nefarious nemesis, right? Some, some invading army coming across the border that's easily recognized. Our enemies today, my friend, friends, <laughs> they can be much more subtle. Those who persecute you who abuse you, who curse you, who've harmed you in some way, have stolen your dignity, your respect, someone you have, maybe you're in partnership with in business or marriage or some other relationship and they've betrayed you. Someone who threatened your way of life, even your political or your religious belief system, right? Someone you have not forgiven. Someone you judge. And speak poorly about. My friends, I want us to see another amazing interaction. This is Jesus in John chapter 4. It's one of my favorite uh, stories in, in all the scriptures. It's the woman at the well. If you have your Bible, you can follow along with me. Uh, if not, just listen to the story. Because it's an extraordinary one. Starting out in, in verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. Although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar. Near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, which is about noon. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me? 
a woman of Samaria. My friends, we're not in that context. We don't understand why that's such an extraordinary interchange. But I've done a little research here. Jews and Samaritans shared a common ancestry. At one point, they were the same people. And then some of the Jews decided to intermarry, to marry non-Jews. And the worship of Yahweh was mixed with other gods. You can read about that in 2 Kings. Then in Ezra 4, it recounts how the Samaritans were rejected when they wanted to join in the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. This led to political hostility and opposition. Then the Samaritans tried to undermine the Jews with their Persian rulers and to slow the rebuilding of Jerusalem and its temple. Nehemiah tells us part of that story. And in 108 BC, the Jews destroyed a Samaritan temple and ravaged the area. My friends, it went back and forth, back and forth for hundreds of years. Jews desecrating, Samaritans desecrating. And it got to the point in Jesus' day where they had zero interactions if they didn't have to. Where the Jews wouldn't even eat off the dishes or the utensils that the Samaritans had used. Certainly not drink from an earthen vessel that this Samaritan woman had. He, a Jewish rabbi. And yet what's the first thing Jesus does besides entering enemy territory? He asks this woman for a drink. He asks her for something. Right? He shows her dignity. He shows her respect. And she's blown away and she talks about it right here. Right? Let's go on. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from him himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give, will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. My friends, he offers the enemy living water. Then the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. It's an understatement, isn't it? Jesus acknowledges intimate, even embarrassing details about her personal life. But notice he doesn't condemn her here. He doesn't judge her here. He knows that she's there alone 
It's noon. All the other women come in the early part of the day before it's hot with their kids clinging to them, living life, getting water, talking about, you know, the day's events, etc. And here's this woman. She's obviously been ostracized. Maybe she, she even couldn't have children. She couldn't bear children. And so that's why she was divorced several times. Because men could do that if their wives were barren. She comes to the well. She has no kids clinging to her. What can she talk about with these women? They look at her. She looks at them. I'm going to have a different mic. Is this better? So here she is, and she's been exposed in a sense, right? She's even living an adulterous lifestyle at this point. But Jesus doesn't judge her. She obviously wants to change the subject uh, pretty quick. So she says, the woman said to him, so I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. They were even different in how they worshipped. They, the Samaritans worshipped on the mountain of Jerusalem. Sorry, the Jews worshipped in the temple in Jerusalem. And yet he wasn't obsessed with being right at this point. He wasn't in a theological debate with her. He was just sharing. And then he says this. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. It's one of the earliest times when he actually revealed himself to the world. And he reveals it to the Samaritan woman, his enemy. The Messiah. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Messiah who's, who will release her from sin, from shame, from guilt. And give her the abundant life. to her himself. My friends, his encounter with her is so positive. I don't have time to read the rest of this, but I'll read the very end. It says, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Oh, by the way, she leaves him. That's an important part. She leaves him and she leaves her water jar, which is the whole purpose of her going there. But she's in such haste. And she goes back to her town and she says to the people, Come See a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town. And they started coming towards him. 
Many Samaritans, it says, from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of you, of what you said, that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. My friends, it's unheard of. A Jewish man spending two days with a whole town of Samaritans. And yet they believe that he is the savior of the world. Enemies meeting in this such unlikely place. And I'm simply going to ask us this morning, could we go and do likewise? Just last week, Pastor Scott said, this is to be something that is to be lived out. And the only place that it has any power is when we put it at the foot of the cross. And we step into it in our own personal lives. So my question for us today is, what is your Samaria? Maybe it's trying to understand BLM or, or something else. Something you don't agree with or understand. Are you ready for this? Maybe it's watching an opposing news source. Look at a different point of view. To see maybe what you could learn from them, those guys. That's radical, my friends. But that's what we're called to do, to radically love one another. Who is your Samaritan? Maybe it's someone specific that has been a thorn in your flesh. Maybe that person's coming to your mind right now. And Scott talked about, Pastor Scott talked about the divisive political climate we're in. It's ripping, he says this last week, it's ripping our churches apart. And I believe it breaks Jesus' heart. And then he said the disciples did not allow their differences to divide them or to define them. So what prevents us from radically loving our neighbors or our enemies? I think it's a couple things that I can identify. There's many more. But one is fear. Flat out fear. It's interesting. We've, um, back in the 90s, uh, as missionaries, there was a big emphasis on praying for the 1040 window. Is anyone familiar with that term? Okay. Right. It was 10 degrees north to 40 degrees north, just above the equator. A whole swath of people around the globe. Mostly very impoverished, mostly in huge ideological and, and uh, uh, suppressive governments, right? It was just this swath of people that seemed to all fall into that category. They were also very unreached, right? Very, um, yeah, just the, the gospel was, was not getting to those countries. And so we were praying for them and praying for them and praying for them. And then guess what happened? In more recent years, these same people have been flooding out of their countries as refugees. They've been coming to Europe. They've been coming to America. And they're now our neighbors. Our neighbors. It's like God is saying, well, you prayed for them. Now I'm giving you, to, I'm giving you them. They're, they're right here. You can love them incarnationally. You can bless them yourself. Are we doing that? 
Or are we afraid of them? Are we wondering what they might take from us? What we might lose if they gain something? And we resent them. What else prevents us from radically loving our neighbors and our enemies? I think it's, it's this. We objectify and we label them. We dehumanize them. We call them those Democrats, those liberals, those Trumpers, those freeloaders, those terrorists, those gays, those, and we go on and on. Right? The same people created in God's image. The same people who Christ radically loves and came and died for. Some of you are going to be familiar with this story. I told it a couple years ago at a missions time we had. I do a lot of work in Rwanda. And a ministry there that I partner with called CARSA does a lot of work in reconciliation. Reconciling perpetrators of the genocide and victims of the genocide. You see, in 1994, on April 6th, people were visiting one another. Neighbors were meeting with neighbors. They were having birthday parties in backyards. They were sitting and talking and having barbecues, etc. April 6th, 1994. April 7th, in the early morning, the killing began. The Hutus rose up and started killing the Tutsis. Their neighbors, their friends, the godparents of their children... A million people were murdered in a span of a little over three months. One man, Peter, attacked his good friend and killed him. His good friend's wife ran away and survived. Peter was put in prison, but 25 years later he got out. He was set free. The only place he knew where to live was back in his village, which happened to be next to Bieta, who lost her husband to him. He was still living in a prison of guilt and shame, self-contempt and fear. But knowing that Peter was free and, and had returned to her village, Bieta was reintroduced to her pain, to her bitterness, her anger, her unforgiveness, her fear. And then they met. For the first time in 25 years at a reconciliation workshop. And after an intense week that continued to meet together as a small group. And after eight months or so, Peter got up the courage to ask Bieta for forgiveness. At first she refused. But after a couple months, she forgave him. And I met them. I met them a couple years ago. And they were raising a cow together. That makes no sense, right? Except for the fact that they had to raise this cow together until it produced a calf. So every day they had to meet. And they had to take care of this cow until it produced a calf. And they had relationship through that time. And when Peter started coming down Bieta's walkway to her house, instead of running in fear... She now pulled out the little cakes that she'd made, and she put the water on for tea. And when Peter was done feeding the cow, he sat with her, and they talked. 
and they shared about their lives. My friends, this is the most powerful apologetic I have ever seen about God's existence. Because what I've just shared with you is absolutely impossible apart from God. And they told me their stories. And I remember holding hands with Peter and holding hands with Vieta and, and praying for them. I've never held hands with a murderer and a victim at the same time. And yet I could just sense the Holy Spirit had been intervening, interceding for them. Praying on their behalf, groaning on their behalf. Because it's so impossible for enemies to love one another. And yet it was happening. And I saw it with my own eyes. What is Jesus calling us to do? This, this passage rocked my world. But I'll read it to you guys because this is the word of God. Luke 6, starting in verse 27. He says, but I say to you who hear. You know, it's interesting. Whenever Jesus said that, those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Those who have eyes to see, let them see. Whenever Jesus said something like that, it was like, okay, listen up, folks. Like, if you haven't been, if you've been sleeping, if you've been doing anything else, now's the time to listen, right? So he says that. He says, but I say to you who hear, Jesus, let us hear. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Did you hear what it said at the end? It's not in vain if we do these things. Luke 6.35 says, And your reward will be great. And you will be sons and daughters of the Most High. You will be rewarded for living, not as the world lives, but as the kingdom of God is calling us to and commands us to, to love our enemies. And my friends, if we can do that as a church, we will change the world. I believe that with my whole heart. 
Because nobody else was doing that. But Jesus did it. And it had profound implications. Absolutely profound. Did you realize that we were enemies of God at one point as well? Romans 5.10 says, For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled by the death of His Son. So much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. My friends, this is another thing that convicted me. We sang a song, and I've been listening to this song all week. In my Father's house, there's a place for me. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. Remember singing that? Yeah, it was the first song. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Let me ask you this. In your father's house, is there a place for your enemy? Christmas Eve, 1914. World War I, the German and Allied forces left the shelter of their foxholes and came together on Christmas Eve to recognize Christ's birth. For a few moments, my friends, they recognized one another not as the enemy, but as a human being created in God's image. And they celebrated Christ, the newborn king. They put aside the war they were fighting against one another, and in that moment, they shared cigarettes and photos of their families and their loved ones. What they shared in common overshadowed their differences while they were together remembering that holy night. I think if there was ever a time to focus on the hope we have in Christ and our identity as brothers and sisters first and to lay aside what's been tearing us apart it's right now. It is right now. I want to share one last story with you. It's very personal. And then we'll have a, a few minutes to respond to some questions. My friends, I, I grew up with a dad who um, was born in uh, Brooklyn, New York. Came to the Northwest. Homesteaded a, a, a place on Vashon Island, five acres built a house from the ground up. You know, we had animals, we had everything. We had, uh, he, and he did it. He learned it all. Didn't have the internet, so he checked out books. He was the MacGyver. He could fix anything. And I remember about 10 years old, I'm standing there. We didn't have a garage. It's pouring down rain. He's underneath the car. He's got one of those little dummy lights. And he's just asking me for tools. I need a 9-16 wrench. I need, I need a flathead screwdriver. I need, I was a tool guy. But my friends, I was never invited into actually learning about how to fix the car. And I wish that I had been. And a couple, years, a couple weeks ago, my dad, um, we took him to a, uh, a care facility. My mom passed away about a year ago. And so we took my dad into an uh, assisted living place. And he asked me to sell his tools that are in his basement. And he has every tool imaginable that he used to build that house and restore this and that and the other thing. And 
I remember standing two weeks ago by myself in my dad's basement looking at these tools. This jointer and this planer and this drill press and a lathe and, and, and three different kinds of saws. And, and I realized I didn't know how to use these tools. And I was angry. Not the sin of commission. My dad never abused me physically. But the sin of omission, what he kept from me, what he never taught me, what he never passed on to me, that I cannot pass on to my kids now. And I feel that, trust me, when they say, Dad, can you, can you help us fix this? I'm sorry, son, I wish, I wish I knew how. And so standing in my basement, I begin to get angry and frustrated. And, and I was going into a really dark place about my father because I felt cursed. And I wanted to curse him back. But a couple weeks prior, I'd been with some friends. And one of them had shared some tough things about his own father. And he said, you know what? I was at a conference 25 years ago. And a man talked about writing a tribute to, to your parents. A tribute of how they had blessed you. How they had done amazing things for you. And, and taken care of you. And provided for you. And I started thinking about those things for my dad. And how I grew up in this idyllic setting on this farm. And how wonderful. And incredible it was and and I realized in that moment that I needed to bless my father I needed to write him a tribute not curse him but bless him and healing would take place healing would come out of that my friends we're going to have a few minutes here to respond to what the Lord's been stirring up in you and I hope he has been. And I hope it's a struggle, my friends, because it's been a struggle for me. This has not been an easy message to prepare or even to, to share with you guys. Some questions are going to come up right now, and we're just going to take a, a couple minutes to consider these. Who in your life has wronged you or betrayed you? Or is a threat to you or, or your way of life in some way? Who could you identify as an enemy? What would it look like to love them? To bless them instead of cursing them? Could you commit to praying for them daily for the next 30 days? That would be radical. could that look like for you? Just take a few minutes and ask the Lord those questions and have him bring people to mind.
soul with those questions throughout the week. But I want to leave you with Matthew 5.16. It says in the same way, let your light so shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I think the Samaritans did that when Jesus came. They asked him to stay for two days. Let's go and do likewise. Let me pray. Jesus, we recognize that this is an absolutely impossible teaching. In our flesh, we will fail. But Lord Jesus, we ask in the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to love one another. Help us to love our neighbor who is potentially so different from us. And yes, even our enemies. Holy Spirit, intercede for us. Groan for us. Intercede beyond words. Because Lord's word... Lord, words fail us when it comes to this. And yet this is what you're calling us to do. And I pray, Lord, as we do this, the world will be changed. Because it's so radical. You are radical. And we thank you that you radically loved us came and you died on a cross so that we could have life forever with the God who created us. We are so grateful. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.